The prospect of Russia meddling in the presidential race by hacking into democratic computer systems is raising questions about whether the U.S. political process is in danger of being compromised. If a connection is found, could the United States respond by indicting individuals, imposing sanctions, or through cyber or military means, essentially using the reasoning that democracy is critical infrastructure that needs to be protected? I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call, joined by CQ National Security Reporter Ryan Lucas and by Roll Call Senior Editor David Hawkins. Ryan, let's start by reviewing which Democratic organizations got hacked. Well, you have the the Democratic National Committee. Uh, That's the first one. This past week, it came out that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee uh, was also hacked. And then late Friday, word came out that perhaps Hillary's campaign had been hacked as well. Now, Hillary's campaign came out and then said that it was an analytics data program that was actually maintained by the DNC. Uh, It wasn't the campaign's networks or computer system itself. But those are the three, the three entities, aspects so far that, that we know of that have been hacked. What is the Russian connection here? Uh, a lot's been made of Russian interests, but how is that connection drawn and who's drawing it? After the DNC realized that uh, there had been a breach of its system, it hired a cybersecurity firm called CrowdStrike, which conducted an investigation to look at how this, how this breach happened. CrowdStrike came to the, came to the conclusion that there were two groups with uh, links to Russian intelligence agencies who were behind this, uh, this hack. And they came to the conclusion that they were Russian based on the malware that they used to get into the system, uh, so the malicious software, and by looking at previous targets that, that these two groups had gone after. And these are two groups, one's called Cozy Bear, the other's called Fancy Bear, that they were familiar with from previous investigations. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that while Other cybersecurity firms also looked at the information that was available on these two hacks and also came to the conclusion that Russian groups were behind it. The U.S. intelligence community and the White House, however, have not publicly attributed this hack to anyone. You have anonymous officials who have said that, yes, there are are indeed Russian links, but the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, said last Friday that uh, the intelligence community is not prepared at this point to make a call on attribution. Uh, And so officially, at least, there is no public call on on who's behind this. David Hawkins, the release of the Democratic National Committee emails was a huge embarrassment to the party. There was a lot of sensitive personal stuff about high rollers, and it cost the chairwoman her job. But are are there longer-term repercussions? Well, I think the the original, the timing of the release, as as we know, the the content of this, this trove of emails was given over to WikiLeaks, and it was released on the eve of the convention and that in that sort of news sweet spot between the end of the Republican convention in Cleveland and the beginning of the Democratic convention in Philadelphia. Perfect timing. There was sort of a news void. Uh, and it, the initial repercussion was, as you mentioned, it, it cost Debbie Wasserman Schultz her job. She was a somewhat controversial chairwoman of the of the DNC itself. The, the initial angle for this was not the Russian, the role that Russia may have played, but the, the news or the revelations, the, the, the strong evidence that Debbie Wasserman Schultz and others at the Democratic National Committee had essentially put their thumb on the scales to favor Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, something that Wasserman Schultz and other DNC officials had emphatically denied doing. The long-term repercussion politically uh, is that the Bernie Sanders supporters went into the convention and really left the convention thinking 
that just as they had suspected all along, all systems are rigged against them, and even their own Democratic National Committee was rigged against them. So they, they'd left Philadelphia with, without much confidence. Going forward, uh, as you say, a trove of really juicy details that an easily searchable, that's a relatively easily yes. searchable database. So anybody who was a donor to the DNC can go and see whether they were being uh, punked behind their backs. Whether that actually causes people to put their checkbooks back in the top desk drawer or not, I think probably remains to be seen, but a lot of annoyance along the way. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, then took things up a notch, uh, inviting the Russians basically to commit espionage and get their hands on Hillary Clinton's emails while she was Secretary of State and to make them public. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Uh, that's drawn attention to this tangled web, people in Trump's inner circle uh, who have connections to business ventures in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, that is that is right. And, you know, Mr. Trump, we should just hasten to add, says he was now being sarcastic. It's about the only time he's I've known him to even row back from a controversial statement, even, even that much to say he was just being sarcastic. Uh, I think the the most obvious person to mention in all this is Paul Manafort, who was brought in as the campaign chairman for Mr. Trump. Um, he's a longtime Republican operative, goes back to the 1970s, was actually the guy who engineered the somewhat contested convention of 1976 and, and was brought into the Trump inner circle to be a fixer when it looked like Trump was going to have to fight for the nomination at the convention, but has stuck around as sort of the, the only true old hand in politics uh, that Trump has at his side. During the intervening years, he had many, many clients, including important clients in the Ukraine. Uh, he is it now sort of gives rise to this notion that Donald Trump is friendly with Mr. Putin, in part, in part because Donald Trump has also toggled back and forth between saying he's close to Putin, he has no relationship with Putin. Uh, the American people are probably left scratching their heads, wondering once again uh, where Trump's prevarications versus exaggerations, where the balance is on that one. Ryan, without knowing all the details, uh, safe to say Hillary Clinton and Vladimir Putin have an acrimonious relationship that goes back some years. That is indeed a, a, a safe conclusion. The acrimonious relationship dates back, uh, if, if you really want to get into kind of the one turning point, the one spot that people tend to say is really where, where things turn dark is the 2011 parliamentary elections in, in Russia. These are disputed. Were they fraudulent? Observers have said that they're certainly suspect. And Hillary said as much. She said that basically uh, Russians deserve free and fair, transparent elections with leaders who are held accountable. And Putin did not appreciate that by all accounts, by accounts from U.S. officials who were based in Russia at, at the time. And Putin essentially accused Clinton of uh, drumming up dissent and the you know, kind of wave of, uh, of protests that swept across Moscow at the time. And so, yeah, this, this is not a, a relationship in which Clinton and Putin look at each other and say, oh, these are, you know, this is somebody I really want to work with on the international scene. No, nothing of the sort. There's also the, the story of, of Clinton at one point walking out of a meeting with the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, right after it started, when Lavrov just said, you have to pull USAID out of the country, we're kicking them out of Russia. And Clinton reportedly just got up and left. He <laughs> tried to bring her back, and she just walked straight out. So if the United States concludes this really is Russia, what can they do? Well, 
the administration would have uh, a couple of options. One of them is is indictments. If they can attribute it to specific individuals, then they can indict them. This is what the U.S. did in the case of uh, a number of Chinese hackers uh, a couple of years ago, and what they also did with a number of Iranian hackers. They could also impose sanctions, which is what they did after the Sony Entertainment hack. That was against North Korea, however, and you know there are already a slew of sanctions that the U.S. has imposed against North Korea, and the diplomatic repercussions of imposing more sanctions on Russia now uh, over a hack when the U.S. is trying to work with Russia uh, in Syria to try to broker an end to the conflict there. You know, is it going to jeopardize that? Is it worth doing? There's also the question, and this is kind of a, a broader issue, the, the idea of deterrence and trying to get these sorts of cyber attacks to stop. Uh, and this is something that the administration has, has been wrestling with for several years. The Pentagon has come out with what it considers cyber attacks that are worth responding to. Um, and one of them is an attack on critical infrastructure, something that threatens foreign policy, national security interests, the economy. And one of the things that U.S. officials, including Lisa Monaco, who's the Homeland Security uh, Advisor to the President, counterterrorism advisor, has recently said is that, you know, maybe we need to look at the democratic process, the electoral process, as being part of the, the U.S. critical infrastructure. And if it is, then that opens up a whole slew of, of, of options. Um, the Pentagon has said, you know, if this, if critical infra infrastructure is is attacked, then it can respond through military means. It can respond through cyber means, um, you know, financial means. Like there, there's a whole range of options that that would open up. But the question is, diplomatically, politically, is this something that the U.S. is going to want to do? David, uh, Trump has angrily stated that he has nothing to do with Russia, but by declining to release his tax returns, is he fanning continued speculation? I think he absolutely is, and I think I think that's a great question because it kind of circles two, two of the important secondary narratives in this election. It connects them together. Uh, the the Democrats made some progress. The, uh, the initial polling shows with their line of attack during the convention that he won't release his tax returns. Uh, there are editorial boards all over the country are weighing in on this, using the Russia example as their as their latest reason to write yet another editorial saying that Donald Trump should not be the first major party nominee since Watergate, essentially, to not release his tax returns. Hillary Clinton has released eight years' worth of tax returns. Donald Trump keeps prevaricating on this one, saying they'll come out soon. I think I think it's a safe bet to think that they will not come out before the election, uh, and probably not then either, whether he wins or loses. And obviously, just to sort of state the obvious, what those would show, in theory, is not just the domestic concerns, has, is he as rich as he says he is, is he as uh, philanthropically generous as he says he is, but where are his investments and what, what tangible connection does he have to foreign governments, in particular Russia? Roll Call Senior Editor David Hawkins, CQ National Security Reporter Ryan Lucas on Donald Trump, Russia, and the hacking of Democratic Party computers. I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs>